Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. Bill. Allie. <laughs> How are you? Um, I'm good. I had, uh, I sort of laughed. I was just doing a little bit of yoga and my dog, my new puppy kept coming and literally biting my ankles and then trying to like play with my face and jump on my body. And I just thought, oh, God is wanting to play with me in the form of my dog. I thought of Jim Finley. <laughs> <laughs> he says says you know when you feel like you're just so frustrated because you can't get that moment of quiet because your kids keep coming in or the puppy keeps biting your feet I thought oh this is an invitation to play (laughs) so Uh, and um, uh, for those people who either attend or watch on your life online we are um trying to figure out a way that we can organize those who want to to attend the final conspire meeting that father richard Rohr's organization the center for accident and contemplation is going to be putting on it's a work in progress we haven't gotten there yet jim finley and this is why i bring it up because you mentioned jim jim finley is one of the main speakers of this conference and so is um jackie lewis Lewis is going to be one as well. Um, and, and we may not be able to work that out, but if anybody is listening and they are interested in exploring, attending online, the last Conspire conference that will ever be held, they can go to cac.org and check it out. And um, if we are able to pull off some small group experiences, we'll do that right now the technical people are not encouraged yeah. well we'll figure it out and maybe it's just putting the word out there that hey if anyone in ordinary life or anyone listening wants to do that it is available for even personal attendance too sounds like a, a banger lineup barbara yeah. holmes oh. jackie lewis jim finley uh, brian mclaren too is that right yes so, yes that's correct yeah, yeah. So, and of course, Richard Rohr. And of course, Richard so, Rohr, his swan song, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I am, I've written hmm, a fair amount of introduction for uh, our time on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And I had it in my mind that as we, pursued introducing this theme of walking the path of paradox and contradiction. Ordinary life teachings in terms of of mystic stuff. I wanted to do these three parables, the one we did about the treasure in the field, the one we did last week about the Pearl of Great Price, and then getting into the parable of the prodigal son. And both of us have been reading Henri Nouwen's book, on the return of the parable based on uh, Rembrandt's painting of mm-hmm. that of that event. And um, you and I talked briefly before we started recording this about our impressions about that 
And, you know, it just occurred to me that we're being given a wonderful opportunity to to do what Michael Morewood invited us to do and to rethink this parable in light of evolutionary cosmology. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, just in, it, I, I definitely um, think that there is it, the return of the prodigal son that Henri Nouwen writes is an, it's a relatively straightforward, um, very personal read. Like it's, it's very much about his journey with this painting and this parable. Um, and it gives you some great, it's, it's actually kind of wonderful in some ways to read such a vulnerable account from a male clergy, right? A, a, a man. And, um, and I encourage people to read it. And, you know, one of those things that we are both sort of finding ourselves going, huh, about is his, his notion of God is still very much the God, the father and that Mm -hmm. personalized God. And so reading this book and rereading the parable, translating that into um, an expanding, evolving God. And, exp- and placing ourselves inside of that narrative so that it also allows for our reading of it to expand and evolve. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, um, I think it is a really great opportunity to go, as Michael Morewood said, like, who are you imagining when you are praying? Who is the God you're asking me to imagine in this story? Who is the father you're asking me to imagine? Who is the son? Who is the second son? Who are the people in the background? You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. Mm-hmm. It is well, in so many ways an exercise of both Lectio and Visio Divina, right? To mm-hmm. really be in, in the visual and in the story. One of the, one of the questions that Michael Moorwood raises is about uh, prayer, about who are, who do you, what do you imagine, or what are you asking me to imagine when you ask me to pray? Mm-hmm. What is that? And for me, the prayer is very much about what the essence of the parable of the prodigal son is about, and that is a return to the true self. Yeah. And Absolutely. spending time with that. Mm-hmm. For sure, so we, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then um, I want people to know that we're, we're going to be using uh, John Shelby Spong's book on the Gospel of John after this. I don't know how many Sundays we're going to give to the parable of the prodigal son. I'm thinking about um, a number. Do you want me to guess that number? I'm thinking of a number between one and ten. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. Have, I don't have an answer yet. I was thinking while I was. Re, I'm rereading now, and I probably read that book um, a couple of times. And I gave you my copy, and then I bought the Kindle version. I was thinking about just pretty much doing it in the paragraph of the parable that Nowen does. That yeah. each that would give us a chance to address each character pretty carefully. Yes. And as you know, I'm interested in who's not in the story, who's not in the painting too. And and for me, one of those is there's a song, I've mentioned it to you, by a folk singer named Michelle Schacht. I think it came out in the early 90s. I first heard it sometime around 94, 95, and it's called The Prodigal Daughter. And she sings this song about okay, we know that the prodigal son came home and he was welcomed with a party and open arms, but what about the prodigal daughter? in whose 
oats he's sown, right? Um, and, and, you know, the narrative, and I think this is still very true 20, 30 years later, is that when the prodigal daughter returns from the same escapades as the prodigal son, and maybe even having slept with the prodigal son, the shades are drawn, the family feels shame, she's brought shame upon the family name. And so that same, so I, I think there's a, in, as I've been reading Nowen's account and rereading the prodigal son parable, I have been thinking about that, like who is left out and who are, what are the considerations we need to make um, for who the prodigal son hurt, betrayed, took advantage of, all, all of those things. And how can that story also be part of his redemption and restoration? Because part of redemption and restoration is also responsibility and repentance, right? And and this this idea of wanting to move toward restoration, you have to want that in order for it to occur. Um, and I, you know, gosh, now I'm a little on a tear, but there's I've been thinking also that there it's really helpful to kind of be thinking about Rembrandt's painting alongside the parable. There are dozens of painted iterations of the prodigal son. And I've been looking at a couple this week. Um, and for sure, Rembrandt is considered one of the masters um, because he painted it at the end of his life. He painted it when he had lived a life of kind of debauchery and uh, ego. And he was a very talented, popular artist, even while he was alive, which was very difficult to do. Um, and there's as many ways to interpret art in this case, the prodigal son, as there are to interpret scripture. And so everything that we bring to it, we're bringing our lens, our projection, our experiences to both the story and to the painting. And so I've been thinking about like, you have the situation, what happened, and then you have the story about the situation. <laughs> yeah. And the story about the situation is where we interject our own interpretations and experiences. So um, I've had a very synchronicity experience this week about this whole topic. Mm. Um, my primary responsibility uh, in being on the staff at St. Paul's is what's called general education, which means I teach. And I teach ordinary life, and thank God now we do that together. Um, and I am required by you know, the job description, I do whatever else the senior pastor wants me to do. And that is usually to be involved in service since on Sundays and, and occasionally during the week. Since COVID, we have just had fruit basket turnover as far as the liturgical life of the church is concerned. We're just getting back in the swing of things. St. Paul's used to have three really well-attended services on Sunday. Now we only have two. I don't know that the future is looking bright to have more than that at the moment, which is sad because our middle service was the one in which we used a group of singers called the Choral Scholars. And they were outstanding and we were able to help them by employing them to gain their education and all that. Anyway, I'm off on a tangent. Occasionally, it falls my responsibility to give the homily at the week, midweek communion service, and I'm doing that next week. The week that we, right after we start teaching the parable of the prodigal son, and the lectionary text that I have been given to deal with 
is the one, it's probably the greatest, one of the greatest stories in all of literature. Um, and it's the story, whether in or out of the Bible, it's one of the greatest stories there is. It's a story where Nathan, the, the Old Testament prophet, confronts David, the king, about his affair with Bathsheba. Mm. Wow. And, uh, I mean, David, in, in this story, he's a schmuck. He's worse than a schmuck. <laughs> I mean, he ends up committing murder. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't do it himself, but he has it done. He's like a mafia mob boss. I mean, it, 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 it's just awful. And I was writing and reading and thinking about David and what a schmuck he was. What a jerk. What an absolute jerk. And I found this awareness came on me is, oh, my God, I'm the elder brother. <laughs> Judging the hell out of David. <laughs> I am just giving David what for. Yeah. And you know, when Nathan confronted David, David did not do what the typical American politician would do. He didn't deny. He didn't resist. He didn't argue. He, mm -hmm. he didn't lie. He just said, I have sinned against God. Mm. And, you know, the, the rest of the story, uh, David does not get to build a temple because he's got too much blood on his hands. Um, he and Bathsheba have a son named Solomon, mm -hmm. the Song of Solomon, the mm -hmm. Wisdom of Solomon. David gets implanted in the line of the Messianic king and is mentioned every Christmas and in music and scripture and everything. So... As far as the story of David is concerned, he came home, you mm -hmm. know, and, and some of the greatest psalms are attributed to David, whether he really wrote them or not, we don't know. But um, Psalm 51 is, is the example that comes to mind. But what I thought was just hilarious was I, this, getting this picture of myself as the haughty, judgmental, angry, not joining the party, excluding David. And you kind of went, oh, slap on the hand. And, I, <laughs> and, and I've got to, I've got to tell that in the homily because it's true. It is funny too, and you know, I've as I've been thinking about, um, I have, I've enjoyed kind of having your copy. Thank you, because what you've put marks by, I've marked it up more. I hope that's okay. <laughs> but I, I wrote some notes at the end, and one of the things I was thinking of this, the the painting and the story is also about our developmental life stages. You know, so if we if we're a single person and we see this story as about a single person, these developmental life stages of the the youthful, carefree, loose, and you know, finding ourselves, looking for our identity, who am I? And then um, I think shame is part of our almost every person's life experience at some level. And so is judgment, which is that the older brother, right? Even judging our younger selves, or as we become parents, we judge our kids for the same things that we did when we were kids. And then at some point, we hope to arrive at that place of the father of, you are welcome here, both of my sons, mm -hmm. in your full self, you're welcome here. And mm -hmm. I, I, so I was thinking about that sort of journey at a lifetime, too. And I haven't... Um, reread what happened right before the telling of the parable, but can you off the top of your head, what happened biblically 
speaking, or at least in the biblical narrative, right before the telling of the parable of the prodigal son, it was something about the Pharisees. Um, am I correct? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that the way that it is, the parable is interpreted, is, the way it's placed in, in the gospel, is that it's, it follows an encounter where the Pharisees are are being really harsh and judgmental about Jesus and what he's teaching and and mostly what Jesus does, in my opinion, uh, the teaching that he does is by what he does, right. not what he says. Right. Because we don't really know what he said. I'm coming more and more to that position. Yeah. Uh, the more I study, um, and the more I read, for example, Shelby Spong, um, we don't know, mm-hmm. but. Um, Clearly, the Pharisees are the elder brother. Yes. Who won't come in. And it's basically a challenge to say, well, can't you be like this, where you also invite the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the and the less thans and the have-nots to your table? So, you know, the, we step back and we kind of get to ask the question, who's at our table? Um, mm-hmm. Who do we actually have at our table? And I mm-hmm. would venture to say that most of us are like the older brother. We mm-hmm. say one thing, I want to be love. I want to be open. I want to, but you know, when my kiddo one day asks me on the way back from target, whether the homeless man on the corner could come live with us, I was like, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so there's the situation and then there's the reality of the situation. And then there's the story about the situation. Yeah. So when, when I first came to St. Paul's under the invitation, well, I was here before Jim Bankson was, but I didn't have an office here. And when Jim Bankson hired me to come on the staff, he said, I want you to have an office at the church, which I really resisted doing mm. for several years because I did not want to get involved in church stuff. I mean, if anybody who's ever worked for a church knows it knows how the sausage is made and it ain't pretty sometimes. So I wanted to avoid all that, but circumstances changed. And I went back to Jim and said, okay, I would like to have an office here. What can we do? And at that time, the church was not very well organized. And I got given a storage room on the fourth floor of the building. Which, I remember uh, that office. <laughs> yeah. I I paid myself to have it repainted and decorated and put some furniture in and that sort of thing. And so that's where I saw clients um, two days a week for a number of years. And in my work, uh, both as a, as a therapist and as a spiritual director, I'm very self-revealing. I'm very active in my work. I give advice. I tell people what to do. Make <laughs> and then you say, but you don't have I, to take that advice. <laughs> I, no, I, I am not like your typical psychologist who says, uh-huh, and how did you feel about that? <laughs> and how was your relationship with your mommy? <laughs> so um, I used to take a month off every year. Yeah. Remember? Uh, I'm, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that again starting next year. And I would tell my clients, um, I'm, I'm going to be gone the month of so-and-so. And this guy that I was seeing, very smart man, said, uh, where are you going? And I said, well, we're going to take a Viking River cruise, and we're going to go from Moscow to St. Petersburg. And he said, um, 
when you're in St. Petersburg, you'll go to the Hermitage. And I said, yes, it's on the itinerary. And he said, oh, good. You'll see the painting. I said, what painting? Mm -hmm. And he said, the one that's hanging on the wall right outside your office. And I was thinking silently, but did not say, here I am, a teacher of awareness and paying attention. And I don't have a clue what he's talking about. <laughs> what is on my office wall? <laughs> well, no, it's just outside the office. Oh, I okay. saw it every day. Oh, that's funny. Oh, you didn't day. put it there. Got it. I okay. didn't put it there. It was yeah. already there. So yeah. um, he said, come here, I'll show you. So we left my office, went out in the hall, and there is a reproduction of Rembrandt's painting, The Return of the Prodigal. Yeah. And so we went back in the office, and he said, surely you as a spiritual director of read on Henri Nowen's book about this painting. And I said, who? <laughs> what? He? Yeah. Oh, I knew, I knew yeah. who he was. Uh, uh, and I'd read, I'd read some of his stuff. First book I read of his was a book called the wounded healer, which is wonderful. And the next day on the, on the little table outside my office, there was a package and in the package, was a, a hardback copy of this book. Hmm. And that's how I got introduced to the painting and to Nowen's depiction of the painting. Hmm. There's a, a Spanish artist, Murillo, who, who painted six paintings of the prodigal son. And it's the whole journey, the, the asking the father for the funds, the leaving, the um, cavorting and the you know, kind of debaucherous lifestyle, the, the feeding the swine, the being kicked out, and then the return. And, it, are, you and gonna have, are you going to show those? Yeah, I will at some point. I don't know whether it'll be this Sunday or um, one of the following, but it's, it's, I love that it's sort of the narrative of the whole thing because, you know, so I know that this is maybe feels like a stretch, but one of the things I've been thinking about in it, and because I just said, I think about the stories that aren't there, the stories about who the prodigal son encountered, what happened, not to hang over his head, but because those stories mattered too. And, 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 and I've been thinking about this whole like kind of national debate around critical race theory, for example, and how people interpret critical race theory as an ideology rather than as a framework to tell the truth about our history, to tell the truth about what happened. And when we leave out parts about what happened, we don't get the whole picture. That means we also don't get the whole healing you know and and mm -hmm. so so that's kind of like uh, for some reason why what i've been relating the 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 what's missing from this story too is like if we are willing to leave truths about ourselves or our story out that also impacted other people then we can't fully heal from that we can't grow yeah so I'm, I'm, I'm tentatively calling what we're going to do Sunday, returning home again for the first time. Mm. Because I think, as I said, we, we're being given this opportunity to look at this parable in a, in a way um, that most people are not used to. And it's certainly, if we do it in the way that Michael Morewood is inviting us to rethink everything, um, we can't put it as we're bad, evil, wicked people when we identify with the sun and there's this God out there somewhere that we've got to manage to get back to. Um, 
that's not that's not good theology. I've been thinking of it more like an invitation to live into these traits of compassion, love, mercy, and mm-hmm. courage. You know, so that so in a way, it's like, yeah. So I went, I may have shared this with you once upon a time. I remember you once giving me the task of going, take a picture of you as a little girl mm-hmm. with you, hold that, talk mm-hmm. to her, tell her she's mm-hmm. loved. Sometimes I still do that. I have this picture right behind my computer, actually, one of my favorites. <laughs> um, and sometimes I also, as myself right now, imagine my older woman self. And I ask her, what do you think, mm-hmm. right? And so in a way, I see this painting like that, that the, that, the, that the prodigal son is leaning into his older self, his wisdom self mm-hmm. too. And that wisdom self is saying, come on mm-hmm. back. We'll get there. You know, there, this is a mm-hmm. process. And we see, and that's, again, maybe a stretch, but I, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot, like a kind of individual life cycle. So what that reminds me of is the chapter from Sandra Mitri's book on the spiritual dimension of the Enneagram, which she simply calls the fall. And um, in the process of growing, it's inevitable in order for us to survive that we fall away from aspects of our true self, from knowing our true self. And that's one way that I understand what this return is is about. It's a it's a return to the identity that as as the Buddhist would say, it's knowing the face you had before you were born. Mm, oh yeah. I love that. Mm. Hmm. There's, there's a, of course, I'm going to turn to this book, but there in our book of secrets, Meister Eckhart, there's, um, there's a little meditation. I don't know whether to call them poems or meditations, but whatever it is, it's called love knows no why. And I won't read the whole thing because I think I'd like to read it Sunday. But um, that the phrase is a whyless love. In other words, we don't need a reason to love. We can just mm-hmm. love, right? And that's the way we want to be loved. That's the way I think we're called into being love, a wireless love. And, it, it, and, and it, then I think further about that. And I think, you know, a wireless love isn't, you can love someone for no reason in the same way that you can hate someone for no reason, right? So why not choose love, <laughs> you know? And that wireless love doesn't mean that I'm not going to hold people accountable, mm-hmm or have boundaries or have like my own needs in that wireless mm-hmm. love or my own hopes. But I, so I think that that's sort of this tension that we get to walk into is, you know, I think about even what's going through the father's head and the, in the, in the return of the prodigal son. And I think this is just the moment of the return. We don't know what happens next. Maybe the father has this whole conversation or, or life time of conversations or 10 years of conversation with the youngest son going, let's go talk to the prodigal daughter that you mm-hmm. knocked up. Let's go talk to her, become part of your kid's mm-hmm. life. You know, I, I don't yeah. know. I'm just right. imagining what does this, what does the father help the son do to restore himself to mm-hmm. himself? I think 
there's a process after the painting, after the story mm -hmm. too. But it starts with, I love you just because, come on home, we'll work it out. Well, I'm, I'm thinking that um, we, we have to give some attention to the prodigal mother who. Yeah, who may or may not be in the painting. A lot of people think that the Rembrandt painting depicts female uh, slaves and maybe a sister or female servants, I should say, sorry, and maybe a sister. I don't know. Rembrandt never said. Nope. I think Rembrandt was painting, was depict, depicting three images of himself. Mm -hmm. And then the, and, and the other people are almost more like aesthetic choices. Because they, they're so faded into the background. Myster it's certainly mystery. We could read a lot into that, the mysteriousness of that painting. And, and it also says a lot about the class of the father. If there are one to two servants, hanging around, the father is rich, the father is wealthy, right? Um, yes. the red cloak indicates that, all of that, so. All right. Yeah. Well, we're gonna, we're gonna spend some time with this parable and so mm -hmm. people can read about it. They can read Nowen's book if they want to. Um, it remains to be seen how closely we will stick to that, but we're kind of feeling our way. And then we're going to jump into the Gospel of John, which ought to be interesting. Yeah. Are you, so have you Go finished ahead. reading Spong's book? I'm still reading it. I think I'm enjoying, I'm kind of just, I have these three books in front of me that are feeding our classes right now. Well, four actually, because the Book of Secrets continues to just be a daily meditation, if you will. The Return of the Prodigal Son, John Shelby Spong's book, and then The Christian Ar Archetype. Uh, or the uh, the book you gave me about the psychology of John. What's it called? Christian mysticism. Right. And um, so I'm kind of just reading each of those books kind of one chapter at a time. I haven't finished any one of them. I'm almost finished with The Return of the Prodigal Son and prioritizing that one right now. So I think I'll, I think if we sort of, as we angle through John, I'm, I may just for that week, read the chapter that's about the part that we're going to be talking about. Um, but I really am enjoying Spong's book. I think it's very accessible. It's very explanatory. Um, really sets the tone. One of the things that Spong does uh, is that he makes it very clear that John was writing to and in behalf of a particular group of Jesus followers some six decades after the crucifixion. He was not writing for us. Mm -hmm. And he was writing to explain a very painful split that had happened between those first followers who were devout Jews. And then as they incorporated a wider community of people uh, and began to experience persecution, um, how they were ejected from the synagogue. And so every time that John says in the gospel something about the Jews, 
he's not speaking in some anti-Semitic way. He's talking about those people who remained in the synagogue and forced the, the Jesus followers out. And mm-hmm. so it's not anti-Semitism, although it's often been used that way. I really like I, I like Spong. He's he's a he's a great guy. He's um, has a way of making um, scholarship accessible, and uh, I hope we can do that when we talk about the parable on yeah. Sunday. Yeah, absolutely. I hope so too. <laughs> Um, to close, to come full circle, I started talking about how my doing yoga was actually just an invitation to play with my puppy. (laughs) There is a painting of the return of the prodigal son in which there is a dog lapping after the prodigal son and licking his leg. Really? So that was, yeah, just sort of an interesting detail in one of the paintings. Who did that? There is a puppy. I'll have to re- go back okay. and look, but as I was looking through different images, I saw that's kind of, that's sort of a neat detail. The puppy is glad to have the prodigal son yeah. back. And that may well be our best definition of unconditional love is having a dog. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Well, I've enjoyed this yeah. and I will see you sometime. All righty. See you Sunday. Bye.